This is an Emmaus Church podcast. For more information about Emmaus Church, please visit EmmausDenver.com. Hey, I love you, brother. Yeah, I love you too. Well, it's always an honor to be asked to come and share the Word of God. Uh, I do not take that lightly. And I, I never, I've never asked to preach anywhere in my life. Uh, I'm, I'm fearful of putting myself out in front of Christ. So I always want to make sure that what I'm doing is to the glory of Christ, solely Deo Gloria, and not anything that's promoting of self or anything like that. Uh, before I get going here, I, I want to acknowledge my wife. She was unable to be here today. She's with her mom and daughter and grandchildren in San Antonio, Texas. Uh, asked for your prayers around uh, this time last year. Her dad passed away, and it's it's been a it's been a year, and yet God has kept us. He's uh, supported us. He's grounded us. He's rooted us, and uh, we thank God for His perseverance and for how He does what He does in our lives. Um, so, without further ado. We'll get right into today's topic, which is Christ, our identity. And while Aaron read Galatians 2.20, I would call that our anchor verse because I want to do basically a New Testament survey with four points on what it is for us to know Christ and to for Christ to be our identity. If you think of our country, if you think of really the world, there is a huge identity crisis going on. But beloved, this ought not to be so for the believer. Our identity is Christ before anything else. We can get caught up in a lot of things which we say is our identity or we identify with. But for the believers, we, we must come full center and focus on Christ as our identity. And that's what we're going to talk about today. What is identity? Something that makes you you. Attributes that make you, as an individual, unique from everybody else, whether that's your height, skin color, hair color, where you're from, these kind of things. An identity, an identity could also lie in something assigned to you as an individual, like your name, a driver's license, or social security number. An identity can also be ascribed to a group, such as a citizen of a country, an employee of a company, or a member of a church. We also derive identity from things such as our ethnicity. I'm Italian, right? Or maybe our military service affiliation. The few, the proud, the Marines. I'm not a Marine. I'm an Air Force guy. I just met this great young man over here. He's a Air Force cadet, so... Very proud of him, Jared. Uh, also, our athletic ability, things like how much weight I can lift or how fast I can run. We can also make all these things our identity. None of these in and of themselves are necessarily wrong or evil. However, we can form our identity from these things as a source of pride where we can make an idol of them. Is our identity wrapped up in our beauty, our physique, 
our high-paying salary, what we drive, what we own, where we live. I'm a graduate from an Ivy League school. <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> Organizations or clubs that we belong to, what we're able to buy or do because of our wealth or our affiliations. It's easy to see how quickly we can form our identity from worldly attributes, possessions, and relationships. But what do we have that we've not been given? We take pride in these things, which were it not for the grace of God, we would have nothing. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that our identity is first and foremost found in you while we gravitate to and seemingly have been placed in various groups where we've been born, our family and our family name, what we've been able to accomplish by your grace, what you've blessed us with, yet all those things mean nothing apart from our identity in you. Be glorified today, we ask. Father, may you be glorified through your Son, through your Spirit, in this place, that Christ may increase and that we may decrease less of us and more of him until there is none of us and all of him. Thank you for your word. Holy Spirit, wield your sword here in this place. Pierce our hearts. Convict us where we need to be convicted. Encourage us. Heal us. Challenge us. Have your way in us, we pray in Christ's name. I stated earlier that we are facing an unprecedented identity crisis Regarding identity, a recent phenomenon is rapidly overtaking our society. You've seen it. And this is the issue of sexual identity. Nowadays, someone born with their gender assigned by God as male or female can now identify as the opposite sex. Not only is this an affront to God, it is extremely detrimental to the person and is wreaking all kinds of havoc throughout all of our society. And then they say things like, well, we're for women's rights, but women are usually the ones that are most victimized by this ideology. You, you think of all these transgender men invading women's sports where they've never won a race against other men, but they go and womp up on women. Or they impose themselves on women in women's restrooms and women's locker rooms. This ought not to be. From a recent news story, this is as early as last week, as recent as last week, the ACLU is suing the state of Indiana's Department of Corrections on behalf of a transgender inmate 
Jonathan Richardson, who also goes by the name Autumn Cordillon. This person was convicted of strangling his 11-month stepdaughter to death with no remorse, zero. He's currently serving a 55-year sentence. And Richardson, who identifies as a woman, wants the state to pay for his gender reassignment surgery. Now think about that, reassignment, which means there was an initial assignment. That initial assignment came from God. When, when you're born and they're filling out your birth certificate and they have to put male or female, they just check. <laughs> they just check the baby. And you know what it is. Anyway, Indiana passed this law adopted on July 1st, which prohibits the State Department of Corrections from using taxpayer dollars to fund sexual reassignment surgeries for inmates. However, the ACLU argues in the lawsuit filed on August 28th that the law is in violation of the Eighth Amendment and is a prohibition of cruel and unusual punishment. Oh, oh well, we, are we actually absorbing this and really understanding what's going on here? The lawsuit further states that accordingly, at this point, gender affirming surgery is necessary so that her physical identity can be aligned with her gender identity so that her gender dysphoria can be ameliorated. She believes that the only remedy in her personal gender dysphoria and the serious harm it causes is to receive gender affirming surgery to change one's identity from what they were born to be from God to be something that they could never be. Think about it. If you have to use the term transgender, that's because you cannot tra translate or transfer to the other gender. You just keep trying, but you'll never get there. This is yet one example of the downward spiral into the reprobation and confusion in our midst. However, what is right and wrong should be very clear to the believer. And we should strive all the more to see these things as we see these things occurring to root our identity deep in Christ. I want to take us into a scripture. I didn't have this in my notes. But turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. I want you to see something. By the way, I, I don't believe uh, this message today is teaching anything new that you don't already know, but rather I'm here to remind you of what God has said, and you probably have been taught very well by the pastoral staff here at Emmaus. Genesis chapter 1, let's start looking from verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have 
dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Beloved, we are at a dangerous precipice at this time in history and in this country. Turn to Romans 1, if you will, as we continue. Again, this is not in my notes, but I just feel led to speak this. Now, I want to say as we turn here, starting at verse 18, Romans 1, we as a church, as a body of believers, need to be extremely careful about accepting the world's diagnosis for what is going on. What I'm getting at is that we say things like the situation where an inmate wants to spend taxpayer dollars to change who he is, we say, oh, there's a, there's a mental deficiency. There's a mental health problem. And I'm not denying that there aren't mental health problems, but before we accept the world's diagnosis, we must look into the word of God to see what God says about it. Because I would argue that even in some cases with mental health, the first and foremost problem is sin. Amen. I believe it was Paul Washer that said, if you do not preach and make much of sin in your church, the Holy Spirit is not at work in your church because the Holy Spirit is to convict the world of sin. So therefore, we will expose the unfruitful works of darkness while having no part in them. Look at verse 18, starting here. And I believe this gives an accurate diagnosis of the issues that we see. Verse 18, Romans 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by the unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be made known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Atheists say... I don't believe in God. Right here, God is saying, I don't believe in atheists because I've revealed myself to you through creation. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him because they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. There's your diagnosis. There's your problem right there. When mankind chooses to deny God his rightful place, they become futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts become darkened. He goes on. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, 
God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with lust for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. There lies the problem. It is not first and foremost, a mental issue. It is a God issue. It is a sin issue. All right. Back on track with our identity. I submit to you that in light of biblical truth that our identity in Christ is realized through four points. One, in our knowing him. Two, in our unity with him. Three, in our suffering for him. And four, in our obedience to him. The first two are relational and are done by God without any involvement from us. The second two are experiential and done by God through us. One, knowing him. We only know God because he chose to know us. He chose us and saved us based on his sovereign uninformed election with no outside influences or consideration. God is sovereign. All that are saved and know God in saving faith do so because he chose them. Look at John 15. I'm going to be all over the New Testament because I want to lay out what it is to have our identity rooted in Christ. We're talking about knowing him. John 15, 16. And if you can't turn so fast, that's okay. I can send my notes or you can go back and review the podcast later. But I want to get through this because I think this is important to root us as a church at this day and time. And think about it. Look where your church is. You are about two miles from a seat of Satan right here at this governor's mansion. And you would not believe the things that are getting pushed down all the way down into the schools what the kids have to be taught legally as they groom these children for the things we read in Romans 1. John 15, 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and pointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask in my Father in his name, he may give you. Conversely, those who do not know God, do not know him because he let them choose. Romans 1, excuse me, Romans 3, verses 10 and 11, as is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that seeketh for God. This is saying that sinful man left to his own devices has absolutely zero desire for God or the things of God. Ephesians 2.1 says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You're dead. 
You were spiritually dead. It is what God said would happen all the way back to the garden. The day you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. They didn't die physically, not right away. But they died spiritually because they sinned. Ephesians 2, 4 to 5. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love which, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. So if you think you had a part in your salvation, how do you do that if you're dead? How does a dead man make a decision? Paul tells us in Romans 3, there's none that desire God. Therefore, we are saved because we are not saved because we are good, but because God is good. And he is gracious, and he is kind, and he's merciful. That's how we're saved. Amen. Paul would say this in Titus, in his letter to Titus, chapter 3, 3 to 6. For we were also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hating, hateful, hating one another. But listen, but... Thank God for but in scripture. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared in the person of Christ, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Christ Jesus our Savior. God, beloved, does not passively give those who he has elected the choice of whether or not they want to know him, but rather he deliberately seeks, pursues, orchestrates, aligns, and predestines us to know him with a 100% success rate. Came to tell you this morning, I, I checked God's fight record this morning and it was still infinity and all. <laughs> Listen to what Jesus himself said in John 6. All that the Father gives me will come to me and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me that all that he has given me, I will lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will, not might, have eternal life, and I myself will raise him on the last day. Amen. That's definite, folks. We, you, you can stake your claim to Christ if you know him in the forgiveness of your sins. If he's rebirthed you by the washing and regeneration of the Holy Spirit, your salvation, your eternity is secure in Christ. It is not optional. It is definite by the blood of Christ. Why did he do this? Number one, not because he loves you. Number one, to the praise of his glory. It's all about his glory. But it is because he loves us. It's also so that in the ages to come, he might show 
the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls, and that in redeeming us, God destroys the work of the devil. Therefore, there's no boast on our part. Oh, I'm saved because I, I chose Christ and I realized that I needed to change my life around. No, you were dead. Christ didn't throw you the rope and you grabbed the hole to be pulled aboard. You were a floating corpse at the bottom of the Mariana Trench and he pulls you out and breathed new life into you. That's how we're saved. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. I, I love what it was said through the prophet Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast in his wisdom, and let not the mighty man voice boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Our second point, our identity should be found in our union with him. Do yourself a favor. Do a little study. You can get a concordance. You can go on BibleGateway.com and do a search. Search where all the places where the New Testament says in him, through him, with him, in Christ, through Christ. This will affirm our union with him. Aaron read Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me in the life which I now live. I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Why would Paul say it's no longer I that live? Is he, is he gone yet? No. It is because his former identity has been eclipsed by his new identity in Christ. Paul would say in Colossians, now, now I want you to put, your, put your, your real listening ears on here. Listen out for the times where the scripture says, in him, in Christ, in Christ, with Christ. These form our unity. Colossians 2, 9 to 13. For in him, the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. That means that, that Christ is God in the flesh. He, he is no mere man. He is the incarnated God in the flesh. Uh, uh, one term that's used to describe this is the hyperstatic union. It is the, the, the fusion of the eternal God in mankind as well, in the person of Christ. He says, in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him, in baptism, in which you also raise up with him 
through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions, that's when he saved you, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, listen to this, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven all your transgressions. Next chapter 3, Colossians 3 and 4. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will also be revealed with him in glory. You got to love Ephesians 1. And one of the things that sticks out to me in Ephesians 1 is that this is all a work of God. And it is none of the work of sinful human flesh. It doesn't have any input from me. God sovereignly chooses. He elects. He predestines. He does all these things. I'm just going to skim through it. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Were you there? I don't think so. Verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood. Verse 8. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he purposed in him. Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his own will. God did consult. Some folks say, well, God looked down through eternity and, and saw who would accept him and therefore that's who he elected. No, no. God's sovereign choice of election is not informed by human will, human decisions, or anything else. How could it be? We're dead. But God consulted the triune. God consulted with himself and none other. Verse 13. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, was sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. We must root our identity and who we are in Christ and in Christ alone. Whenever we put stake in who we are from our earthly perspective, what we have, what our accomplishments are, who we hobnob with, all these things, those are all temporal, and they mean nothing in eternity. Thirdly, our identity in Christ is found in our suffering for him. Now, we don't, we don't typically like that word. And I would almost say that in westernized Christianity, there isn't much suffering. In, in fact, most of us should never even use the word in light of what the scripture says about suffering. Suffering serves to identify us with Christ. In our suffering for righteousness sake, where we endure for the sake of Christ, it bears witness that we are his. It informs the world of whom our allegiance is to. Suffering is not, an op not optional for the Christian, but according to Paul, it is given to us as a package deal along with our faith. He says so in, in Philippians 1, 29. 
For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, which is faith, but also to suffer for his sake. 2 Timothy 3.12 Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. We typically don't suffer persecution because we typically go with the flow. We typically don't speak up and call out and expose the unfruitful works of darkness because we are worried about ourselves, our portfolio, what we own, and all these things being taken away, and, or people liking us or loving us or friending us on social media. So we dumb it down, and we almost act like we don't know him. But I want you to know, it is an honor to suffer or to be persecuted for the name of Christ. The apostles in the book of Acts in chapter 5 were brought before Gamaliel and the council, and they were flogged and then released. And the Bible says that they went out rejoicing that they were able and they were count worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. And they were admonished not to speak about this Jesus anymore, but the Bible says that they went on from house to house and synagogue to synagogue, and they kept right on preaching Jesus as the Christ. Peter would say, if you were reviled for the name of Christ, you were blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Furthermore, God uses suffering to grow us as part of this identity with Christ. We don't grow spiritually through comfort, ease, and pleasure, and worldly successes and achievements, but rather through adversity. I like what the psalmist said in Psalm 119.71, it is good for me to have been afflicted that I may learn your statutes. It's hard for us to learn through wealth. It's hard for us to learn through everything going our way, and God knows that. God has to pull back some things and let us experience a little pain for sometimes for us to get on our knees and cry out to him. You know the story of Job. This man suffered greatly. Had all his children taken from him in one fell swoop, was covered in balls from head to toe, even had his wife say, why don't you just curse God and die? which, by the way, is the same thing Satan told God he would do, so it's no wonder where that came from. But at the end of Job's situation, now mind you, at this time God said, have you considered my servant Job, how there is none like him in all the earth? Meaning God said this was the most righteous man alive, and yet, at the end of his suffering, Job said to God, I've heard of you before with the ear, but now I see you with my eyes, and I abhor myself, I despise myself, I'm repulsed by myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. Job could have never come to that place without suffering. Let's do a brief survey 
of suffering in the life of the Apostle Paul. First of all, God predestined his suffering. We see this in Acts chapter 9 where God was speaking to Ananias and he said, go by the house of this man Judas where you'll find this Paul and lay hands on him. And he's like, wait a minute, God. Wait a minute. You mean the guy Saul who was persecuting and had a hand in murdering Christians? You mean the guy that held the cloaks of those who stoned Stephen to death? What did God say? Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name to the Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he needs suffer for my name's sake. His sufferings were predestined. 2 Corinthians 11, we find some details about Paul's suffering. He says, he was beaten times, in times without number, meaning that he lost count. He was in prison so many times, often in danger of death. Five times he received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times he was beaten with rods. Once he was stoned. Three times he was shipwrecked. A night and a day he spent holding on to a piece of barge in the cold sea. He says he'd been in danger in frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from countrymen, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers in the sea, dangers among false brethren. He says he's been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from all these external things was his worry and concern for all the churches. Can we say Paul suffered? I think so. But then we have the purpose of Paul's suffering. I love this. Philippians 3, starting at verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me, these things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness which is of my own derived from the law meaning being a good boy and I'm doing all the right things checking off all the right boxes but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith listen to this that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, everybody wants that. Everybody wants that. The unbeliever wants that. They want to usurp God's authority and power. But the second part that comes with it, and the fellowship of his suffering. Did you hear what he called that? Fellowship. Suffering causes us to relate 
to who our Savior is, which is none other than Christ Jesus. He suffered, therefore we suffer with him. A servant is not greater than his master. If they treated him like that, how do we expect to be treated? There is a great reward to those who suffer for Christ. Romans 8.18, For I reckon the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. We must look at what we go through in this life from an eternal perspective. 2 Timothy 2.11 and 12. This is a trustworthy statement for if we die with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 16, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Amen. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gain the whole world and yet lose his own soul, or what shall he give in exchange for his soul? Somebody said, no pain, no palm. No fawns, no throne. No gall, no glory. No cross, no crown. Lastly, our identity in Christ is seen through our obedience to him. Paul would say to the Corinthians in his second letter in chapter 5 and verse 17, Therefore, if anyone be in Christ, behold, all things have passed away. All things have become new. If you say that you're in Christ and he's in you, there ought to be some fruit in your life that shows that there is a newness, that you don't say the things you used to say. You don't do the things you used to do. Because your life trajectory is one of obedience to Christ. The Bible doesn't teach a sinless perfection in this flesh, but it does teach that as we grow in Christ, that as he transforms us through his spirit, he causes us to bear fruit. We don't bear fruit of ourselves. Paul said in Romans 6, 4-5, Therefore we've been buried, there it is again, with him, through baptism into death, so that as Christ is raised from the dead to the glory of God the Father, so we too may walk in the newness of life. God doesn't save us to leave us the way we, where he found us. I would argue if you are still the way he found you, I would question whether you're saved, because it's not about you changing your life, but if the Holy Spirit resides in you, he is going to enact some changes. He's going to come in there and clean house. He's going to come in there and do some renovations and throw some things out. I love the direction that we see in the book of 1 John. I call this some rubber meets, meets the road theology. Or, or, or some of us may say John keeps it real, right? John chapter, 1 John, excuse me, chapter 2, starting at verse 6. By this we have come to know him, as a qualifier, 
if we keep his commandments. Wait a minute. I, I thought I was saved by grace. I, I thought I was saved based on the work of Christ. We are. But we are saved to good works. For by grace are you saved through faith, not of works, not of yourself, but you're saved to do good works. We do good works because we're saved, not good works to be saved. Okay? The one who says, I'm still in 1 John 2. The one who says, I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has been truly perfected. By this, we know that we are in him. It's easy. How do I know I'm in Christ? He changes me. There's some fruit that begins to come out on my branches. There's some fruit. The source of that fruit is the Holy Spirit. It's not self-generated. We're not talking behavior modification, but true spiritual fruit that we find in the book of Ephesians. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner in which he walked. That's how we know we belong to him. That's how we know that our identity is in Christ. So we walk in obedience to him. Last scripture. Still in 1 John chapter 5, 18 and 21. We know that no one who's born of God sins, breaks, that sounds like sinless perfection. No. What John is teaching, what he is saying, the Holy Spirit is saying through John, is that we do not continue to live and sin as a lifestyle. The general trajectory of our life is now one of obedience and not one of sin. This is very similar to what Paul is alluding to in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 when he's saying, if anyone practices these things, he does not know God. If anyone is a liar, if anyone is homosexual, murder, thief, covetous, if your trajectory, if your life is consumed with these things and that is all you're living for, then that is evidence that you don't know God. That's what he's saying. But he who was born of God, now this is talking about begotten of God, meaning Christ. But he, Christ, who was born of God, keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come, and he has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are, there it is again, in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. To know him is to have eternal life. There is no way to have eternal life apart from him. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one come up to the Father but by me. Amen. There's no other way. Why? Because we're dead. We can't fix ourselves. You can patch it up. You can put makeup on it. 
You can go get your eyebrows done and your, your toenails did. But until you come to Christ and repentance and saving faith wrought by the Holy Spirit, you are still lost and dead in your sins and headed for eternal damnation. The last thing he says, not only in this verse, but in this book, is little children, guard yourself from idols. Idols distract us. They cause us to fix our identity in things that have no eternal value. It's the same lie from the garden. Did God really say that? Calling what God has said into question is the ultimate okey-doke. It's the ultimate hoodwink. It's the same gift regifted with different wrapping, the same lie from the devil that we could make it through this life and do good and be successful doing us and not being in him. Our identity not found in him. So, when you think of all the things that the world is placing their identity in, beloved, let's not let ourselves get wrapped up in those things. Some of these things are fine as long as we don't make an idol of it or think that we are somehow better than one another because of what we're able to own or acquire or the, the country club we belong to, the hobnob with the who's who. It is better to be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than to be a king in this life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that our identity is not found in the things of this world. We thank you for your word that teaches us how we should be, who we should be found in. Help us to continue to decrease. Increase in us so much to where the world says they look like Jesus. By our love, by our care for one another, by our oneness as your church, your body, the Bible says you placed us in him. And it's in that we rest. It's in that we find our peace. It's in that we find our purpose. It's in that we find everything we could ever want and know. Not only in this life, but in the world to come, world without end, amen. Soli Deo Gloria, glory be to Christ. He and him alone, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.